Welcome to the Wordsmith Podcast. I'm Josh Bennett, lead pastor here at Awaken Church. I got along with me our worship pastor, Matthew Grady Calhoun. Hey. Our executive pastor, Shane Suggs. Hey. And our youth director, Connor Hall. What's up? So we're excited to be back for another week. This has been kind of a rough week of recording because we're on the post side of that time change, that spring forward. How do you, how do you guys feel about time change and this sudden adjusted schedule, multiple hours of daylight at night, darkness in the morning, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think I adjust pretty quickly to it. I don't necessarily like it. Not a fan of time change. Am a fan of time travel, however. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> totally separate subject, but okay. Future episodes of the podcast. There you go. I mean, I've already made my thoughts on the matter public, um, if you follow me on the book, Facebook. Uh, yeah, so look, I don't... Spring forward is my least favorite day of the year. That is not an exaggeration. I hate it. I like my sleep. I don't like anybody to fool with my sleep. However, my favorite day of the year is fallback. And as I said on Facebook, I'm not sure I want to live in a world in which I don't get fallback because I enjoy fallback that much. When it, the day before fallback comes around, I literally go to bed an hour. So that way I get two extra hours of sleep. I love fallback. You realize on any given Saturday night, you could just go to sleep two hours early. No, actually, I couldn't because I live on Main Street oh, that's <laughs> downtown. <laughs> but that's a whole other discussion. Another future podcast episode. There you right go. There. There you go. Uh, I mean, I don't really pay much attention to it. Um, I will say when it getting lighter, you know, not lighter, sooner, but like it stays lighter longer. Mm-hmm. I like that better. I hate when it gets dark at 530. It's terrible. I feel like I need to go to bed. But uh, when it's lighter outside it's awesome like yesterday we were fishing we didn't get done fishing till about 6 45 and that was awesome so and we still had an hour and a half a day yeah, that's it, so. yeah. but my problem with this as the parent of young children mm-hmm. is it is now still daylight mm-hmm. when my children go to bed which is tough yeah i mean so. well the thing is like you're not you don't actually lose any time i mean realistically i mean because there's 24 hours in a day but it's just it throws you way off but I used to love it when, like when I was building houses. I used to love being able to go to work and it was dark outside. I don't know what it was, but I like getting to the construction site and it was still dark. Like it just, mm-hmm. I don't know. I really liked it. But now, I mean, it, it. I don't work out there anymore, so you know, not by and large, I don't. And so I don't, I don't like it as much anymore. Yeah. But uh, I'm not bad. I love the fallback. Like it's. Sure. Um, Jamie hates the fallback because. She seems to always work, and you have to work 13 hours. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so people who are doing shift work, um, a lot of them don't like it if they're having to work whenever you fall back because mm-hmm. because you're having to work an extra hour. Yeah. I have lived in a place where we did not observe daylight savings time. Yeah. We were same time year-round. And I got to admit, I was a pretty big fan of that. It mm-hmm. was pretty nice to not have to change time. But one aggravating thing about that was now in this technological age, you know, our phones change automatically. Mm-hmm. Well, we were an hour and a half from the New Mexico border, and occasionally our phones would change, even though we didn't change. Right. And yeah. so that was very aggravating because, so. like, my whole point of living in a place that didn't observe daylight savings time is I don't have to think about this. But yeah, now I have a, to think about this. There's a lot of talk about some states not, you know, not doing it anymore. Fourteen different states. Right. If Congress approved it, approved it right now, would be permanently on daylight savings. But time. see, like where I'm from, um, in Columbus, Georgia, 
it's right there on the border. Like if one state did it, but one state didn't, like you would be two hours difference. Yeah. And people work and live in different, like a lot of people lived in Alabama, but worked in Georgia. And if one did it and the other one didn't, it would, man, it would just be so complicated to have to figure out. There's too much math and I'm not good at math. So well, it seems like one of those things that it was obviously created for farmers, get that extra hour during the summer seasons and stuff. But, I guess the later hour daylight, but why do we still have it? Like there's, and that's why all these states are are passing legislation about it because they're like it's pointless. Yeah. But it does. This is some interesting facts I read last week. It does. You do see an uptick in heart attacks, strokes, um, all sorts of health ailments because we don't think that one hour shift does much to our bodies, but it really does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I watched a video one time, and I even hate to bring this up because I don't remember it super well. He was actually making the argument that it wasn't related to farmers why we did it. He was making the argument it was actually, it was leading up to one of the world wars, wars. I assume the second, but I don't know that for a fact. And he was making the argument that we did that in large part due to, uh, at that time, with labor laws, you could get more work out of people easier than you could now. So he was saying that Germany was already working more hours in their factories, building uh, war machine, whatever was going, going. So he was saying we switched so that we could get more work out of people, which I thought was interesting, but I have not looked that up at all. So I don't know if it's true or not. But why wouldn't we do it year round to get more work out of people? I have no idea. I wish Georgia was. It seems like it would have to be seasonal. But regardless, does the rest of the world observe daylight savings time? I honestly don't know. Good question. You know, while we're talking about these early mornings and um, morning times, we have somebody. In our small group, I'm going to give her a shout out because she's one of our favorite fans of the Wordsmith podcast, Kat Searcy. She gets up at 4.30 mm. every morning. And it's because, and I'm going to misquote the title of this book. I think she said Meaningful Mornings was the name of the book she read hmm. um, or something of that nature. But basically, everything that is important to you is done by 8 a.m. on any given day. So exercise, quiet time, scripture reading. All that kind of stuff. I don't know. Lunch is fairly important to me. <laughs> yeah. All right. I got you. Just throwing that out there. So today, approximately 70 countries utilize daylight saving time. And at least a sure. portion of the country. Japan, India, and China are the only major industrialized countries that do not observe some form of daylight saving. But yes, that's crazy. You know, hmm. it would be funny if we did outtakes and stuff and it was just Connor trying to pronounce certain words. Yeah, it's bad. Funny, cruel. Yeah. All right, well, enough thoughts on daylight savings time. By the time you guys listen to this, your bodies will be fully adjusted, but mm -hmm. we're still a little lagging this week. But today we're going to jump into 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, Pastor Shane, would you go ahead and read those first 12 verses for us? Sure. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word, by the way their wives live. When they observe your pure, uh, reverent lives, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any 
intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to live life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. So let's jump out of the gate hot here. What does he mean with wives submit to your husbands? Nobody really wants to jump on that, do they? <laughs> it's a fairly straightforward uh, <laughs> phrase. It's it's not. It's one of those passages where it's not so much hard to understand it as it is to apply it. Uh, is one of those things. I, I think the point I want to make clear at the forefront of this is I think when we're familiar with Scripture, and this is probably more a problem for those of you who are listening who have been, uh, you grew up in church, uh, you study the Word a bit, and for us as ministers who take our study of the Word, study of God's Word serious, sometimes we, when we read a certain passage, for example, this one here, uh, 1 Peter 3, our minds kind of almost immediately jump to other passages. Uh, I'm thinking particularly here, since we're talking about wives and husbands, Right, So I'm sure when Pastor Josh and Pastor Shane looked at this passage and got ready for it, Ephesians 5 is probably one of the first things that popped into our minds. Sure, We probably thought of uh, there in 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's either 6 or 7 or 8. I can't remember which one. <laughs> but these other passages where Paul talks to husband and wives came, came to our minds immediately. So that's not a bad thing. But if we do that, sometimes we could actually kind of miss what Peter is trying to say. Because Peter and Paul, although... They certainly weren't opposed to one another by any stretch of the imagination. They had different emphasis in their different letters. I think this is addressing spouses, uh, addressing wives, and we'll get to the husband passage here in a few minutes, is I think it's addressing those who have unbelieving spouses. Mm. And I think that's the primary application of this passage. I don't think he's, he's drawing it out the same way where Paul was in Ephesians 5, where he's really focused on this is what marriage is. This is what ultimately it symbolizes. I don't think Peter is saying the same thing. He's not contradicting Paul by any stretch of the imagination, sure. but that's not his point of application, uh, his primary point of application. And I think first and foremost, we have to keep that in mind, that I think he's primarily addressing those who do not have a believing spouse. Sure. I think when we read it, we often say, well, if it says, why submit your husbands, it's saying that they're inferior, mm -hmm. like women are inferior yeah. to men in whatever capacity you want to say that. But uh, like Matt said, that's not at all what he's uh, referring to here. Uh, when Paul is speaking of uh, husbands and wives, he's talking about a uh, social order, yeah. that, that sort of thing. But Peter doesn't seem to be trying to create any kind of social order or even refer to it. He's saying like wives that want to win their husband to the Lord. Like mm -hmm. they want to be a witness and they want to, it's, it's almost, there's almost an evangelistic undertone to the reason you would submit to your husband, especially if he's an unbeliever because 
you want him to be a believer. And it's probably helpful to keep in mind. Uh, so let's put ourselves in the shoes as best we can. We can't do it completely. But let's put ourselves in the shoes of the listeners here. For them, the idea of being unequally yoked, being married to yeah. somebody who has a different religion to you, this teaching that the church brought forth was new. Because in the Greco-Roman world, it was no big deal to be married to somebody who had a different religion to you. Right. Because most of the people who got married got married for other reasons than love. Sometimes you had love marriage, but most of the time it was because somebody worked out a deal. Uh, you're, you, I'll get you this many goats, <laughs> this <laughs> right. many heifers for it. You know, it, that's how it normally kind of worked out. Or even it was even something more dangerous than that. So for them, this idea of being unlikely, being married to somebody who did not trust in Jesus yet was a very, very common thing. And so he's trying to give them advice on how to handle that, how to work towards that. And it, it fits consistently with this theme that we've seen throughout 1 Peter is, what do you do when you are suffering unjustly? What do you do when you're in a difficult situation, when you're being persecuted, when the world's against you? This, I think, is just a more personal example of that same kind of theme that we're seeing throughout the book. Yeah, and it's also worth noting here as we talk about this idea of being unequally yoked and the wife submitting in a way that would lead the husband to Christ. This is not endorsing or saying, hey, you should go out and be unequally yoked. Mm -hmm. You find yourself mm -hmm. in those situations, or maybe you know, the wife gets saved, the husband's not, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But we have a habit sometimes of taking Scripture and kind of finding a loophole or an angle of going, hey, this will justify something I want to do. So perhaps sure. a young lady's dating somebody that's not a believer. She's like, oh, well, Peter says I should marry them and submit to them so they'll come to Christ. But that's, that's not what's being endorsed here. But it's if you find that situation. Another thing I think is worth noting about this idea of wives submitting, when you do look in Ephesians chapter 5, mm -hmm. immediately following verse 22, I believe it is, where it says wives submit to your husbands, 21 says all believers should submit to each yeah, other. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. it's not as if wives are the only ones that are submitting or husbands are the only ones that are loving. Mm -hmm. There's just these, these responsibilities that we're given to teach and to model and to display. Because let's not forget, and we'll dive into this later on, that marriage is ultimately a picture of the relationship between Christ yes. and the church. Sure. And the reason submission is important is because we are supposed to submit to Christ. Mm -hmm. And wives have the responsibility, or mothers, they, they have that responsibility of displaying and teaching what submission looks like. And in this context of Peter, if a wife is doing that, it could lead the husband to a submission to Christ. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, he wasn't. Like you said earlier, it's not he's not like endorsing like uh, a believer uh, marrying an unbeliever. They already found themselves in that position, so mm -hmm. he's saying since you since you're in this position, I need he knew his his audience that he was actually writing to. He's like, um, this is a real world problem that that you're facing, yeah. and they need a guy. They need what what does God say about this? And so it was that sort of thing. And then Paul in Ephesians. Paul says, tells he's talking to the church, and you could you'll notice this rhythm in Ephesians. There's a lot of threes, and in the fifth chapter, um, Paul says, you know, submit yourselves one to another, speaking to the church, and then he kind of uh, periscopes into three different ways that you can actually do that, mm -hmm. and one of those was the wives submit to your husbands. I think mm -hmm. maybe children, you know, submit to your he parents, that sort of thing, and so well, he yeah. actually he actually gives you three examples in which. Because you'll see right before that, he does a lot of threes like, hey, you should do this. This is three ways you could do it. And then you should do this. And this is three ways you could do it. And then submit to one another. Yeah. And this is three areas you could do that in. And it's helpful yeah. to remember, too, just the fact that he is addressing women at all is 
mind-blowing to the recipients of this letter. Because in the Greco-Roman world, women weren't worth addressing. They were, they were second-class citizens, to say the least. They were slightly above slaves in, in a general sense. So the fact that he was speaking directly to wives was just earth-shattering to them. And it, was, it really speaks to what Christianity has always taught, is that everybody, regardless of gender, sex, regardless of race, ethnicity, everybody is created in the image of God. Everybody, if you have trusted in Jesus, you are a co-heir, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit, you are a co-heir with Christ. Everyone comes to him the same. Everyone has to bow their knee to the cross. Uh, and that's good and beautiful. And, and unfortunately, because we live in a post-Christian society, we sometimes read this passage purely as if it's, we focus on that word submit in such a negative sense, but he's speaking to everybody. And Christianity has always taught, and when it's at, been its at best, has always been consistent on this idea that everybody is inherently worth, worthy. Everybody has inherent value. Everybody has their own place in God's kingdom, and they are to work in the midst of this present kingdom until we get there in all of its fullness. It's a beautiful and a good thing. It's not harsh and uh, burdensome at all. And I, I hate that so many people uh, approach it that way. And that's because our worth is not found in our abilities, right. our gifts, our values, mm -hmm. our race, our gender. Yeah. Our worth is found in the blood of Jesus Christ, Amen. which makes us all equally worthy. Another thing that we probably should address here is that there's a lot of hate towards these couple of verses that talk about wives submitting to their husbands because there's so much baggage that comes with it. And there's been a lot of misuse, mispreaching, sure. mis. Um, handling of these verses in such a way that does become demeaning mm -hmm. or does promote, hey, wives, you just do whatever your husband say. These verses are not teaching to submit to anything that's unhealthy yeah. or unholy mm -hmm. or sinful. It is teaching a, a healthy, holy type approach to this. And so I think that does at least need to be mentioned that God's not telling wives, you just put up with whatever, yeah. um, you know, thinking about domestic abuse or things like that mm -hmm. as well. So let's move on into verses three through six. He says, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who have put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands. So what is Peter getting at here? Is he saying, hey, forget all about outward appearance? Or what's his intentions? What's his motives? What's he trying to say? It's what's on the inside that counts. <laughs> well, I mean, he I mean, is. if we were going to paraphrase part sure. of that, I mean, we we would definitely draw that out. I think it's there's it's much broader and deeper. Oh yeah, of course, than than that. But I, I can tell you this, and because he's still speaking to wives here, I believe mm -hmm. yeah. it, it does seem like he broadens it a little bit. But he says the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. Yeah. I can tell you this, having been married for almost 24 years, that is such a blessing for a wife to be. I, I'm, I'm just being honest. I've mm -hmm. seen heartache in lives of families. Not, I'm not just speaking of like the heartache of, of a husband or, or dad, but in, in the heartache of a family of a wife that w was not that, you know, that was like all up in your face about everything. You know, I mean, just... It, it creates a lot of unnecessary strife. So I can tell you that it is a blessing because uh, Jamie is much like that, gentle and quiet mm -hmm. in spirit. She is much more a behind-the-scenes person. And that doesn't mean that it's bad to be outspoken or, or no, anything like that. But I, but just from what he wrote here, that she always comes to my mind 
uh, when I think of a gentle and quiet spirit and how much of a blessing mm. that has been um, on not, I mean, at the very least on my ministry, you know, but, sure. but on my life and, and the lives of my daughters, uh, because I think that's been a good example for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, everybody wants to be pretty. Everybody wants to be handsome, whatever the, the appropriate term for you. I mean, nobody, nobody wants to be thought of as, as ugly or unappealing, but the fact of the matter is the looks, they fade they change over time, and the best-looking person in the world can't cover up an awful and terrible spirit. Yeah. That's true. And he wants them to be mindful of that, that your spirit, the way you carry yourself, will speak infinitely more to your unbelieving husband than just looking good. Yeah. He doesn't say looking good's waste, uh, wasteful or, or uh, completely unimportant, but it's not It's not the primary thing. It's not even really the secondary thing. It's about having that good, that gentle and quiet spirit that he talks about. Yeah, I mean, the immediate thing, that verse that comes to mind is where it says, talking about David, God looks at, I mean, man looks at the outward appearance, yeah. but God looks at the heart. Yeah. And again, you see misuse of where this verse is, is taught from the wrong perspective entirely. Mm -hmm. Because Peter's point is, worry about what's going on in your heart. And you'll see it taught and, and hammered down that this verse is all about not worrying about the outward appearance. Sure, yeah. And it's it's not, I mean, that's that's the byproduct of worrying about what's mm -hmm. inside first. Mm -hmm. But it's, this isn't a verse that condemns, hey, you need to look like a slob, or yeah, yeah, saying, yeah. hey, you need to look like a slob. Or even like when Paul says, what benefit is bodily exercise? Mm -hmm. Paul's not saying, let your body go. He's saying, focus on your spiritual health sure. more than your physical health. I, I don't know if you guys heard this growing up. I definitely heard this, pers this passage reference to why women shouldn't wear earrings or any gold or anything like that no, an no. awful reference to where they shouldn't have elaborate hairstyles oh yeah i mean I, i've heard that. i've heard a lot of application yeah. from this that none of that application gets at the heart of what this passage is saying no, right no. at all and so you could even and i think even in a uh, a more modern context he he's not He's using hairstyles and jewelry because that was common in their days, sure. but um, to, to be elaborate and gaudy and mm -hmm. those sort of things. But you, you could see it even today where, I mean, it's it's about maybe the car or um, the how you dress or the mm -hmm. school that your kids could go to or the college, you know. What's that on sort your of thing. Instagram feed. Right, yeah, yeah. You, the, your Facebook, mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what you show to the outside world. We could broaden, because I think the intent is still the same. Yeah. Um, and we could see that much more clearly, uh, e even in our day. I remember when I was a kid growing up. I like if you watched like the, and they it was really bad back then. Like the Christian broadcasting uh, networks <laughs> yeah. and how gaudy. They, yeah. I mean, they had these purple and gold thrones that they used to sit on. I love how you and, say used to. Like, if you turn on yeah, it's, it's, TV, I, well, you I, still see. The it. thing is, I don't watch them anymore. I, yeah. I watched them when I was a little kid, yeah. just because I, I mean, Get I thought that's better. what you, yeah. yeah, I thought you were supposed to, and and um, and you could see it. They were just, it was so elaborate. Are you showy. trying to call it uh, Tammy Faye Baker? Just use her name. Just use her name. No, well, it wasn't. It wasn't just. <laughs> she was one of the prominent figures back then. But, I know only two of our listeners are going to know who I'm referring to. Um, I but to make that joke. I'm sorry. But many times it was very outwardly and showy. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, like in in today's society, it, it's not just hair and jewelry that you can do that with. You can. Absolutely. I mean, people do that with their Facebook feed. Like they they want they want you to think they have the perfect life or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, well, and then you talk about getting at the application for modern day, I mean, that would be 
the equivalent, like social media, everybody's always worried about this outward appearance that they're putting on. Right. It's like, quit worrying about social media. Worry about what's yeah. really going on. That's right. You know, worry about your your true heart mm-hmm. and your life. And then Peter gets to husbands, and, and then we have another issue we need to kind of work through here. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner. So what does Peter mean, a weaker partner, or a lot of translations say weaker vessel? Yeah. I mean, again, I think we want to keep our, our primary application here. So I think he's, again, speaking to husbands with wives who believed differently or followed another religion. I think that's the primary application here. And, um, he says, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as if, look, the norm back then was whatever the husband believed, whatever gods he followed, the wife would follow along. But let's not kid ourselves. They were still people, so there are definitely still women who didn't follow suit with that or what have you. Um, so obviously some of the men here probably are going through that same situation, and he's just trying to be like, look, you have to be kind. You don't need to be abusive. You don't need to force her to follow Jesus because nobody can be forced to follow Jesus. You have to be kind with her as she is the weaker vessel. I think that's the primary application. We can talk about more things there. Yeah, and, and I think part of it is a cultural thing. Um, yeah, you, absolutely. You, um, women, when their husbands died, they were destitute. Many of them had no way to make a living, mm-hmm. you know, if they're if they're a husband or if they and then they didn't have a son after that. But I think, and it's, it's in no way saying that that as women being the weaker vessel, it's not saying that they are weaker spiritually. Um, I, I know uh, uh, more women that are prayer warriors, you know, than yeah. than most men, you know, sure. um, just because I mean it's a cultural thing, maybe. But I think whenever he is writing this, whenever he is saying this, uh, he is saying uh, the the man's role there is to provide mm-hmm. and to protect, because and he's really saying that the women are cherished. He's saying you need to be able to provide and protect her because that is your responsibility. And it's actually a weightier, and we don't have time to get into all the language, but there's actually a weightier command for husbands than than there is even for the wife. Yeah, I mean, Karen Jobes, who is a scholar, I've been using her uh, First Peter commentary. She makes the point he addressed husbands last because that was a normal aspect when uh, in Greco-Roman culture when they would be addressing different groups in a letter or something, you would save the most powerful, the most influential for last. Uh, I also want to read, since I already mentioned her, I want to read, she was commenting on this passage. She says this, this is Karen Jobs again. Yet because Peter is engaging the Greco-Roman worldview, he probably alludes here to the thought, common in ancient society, that the prayers of the male head of the household to the gods are important for the prosperity and well-being of the household and therefore contribute to the well-being of the city. Peter points out that the well-being of the Christian household depends on the man recognizing the female as a co-heir in Christ and living with her respectfully, even though he is physically stronger and socially empowered male. In this way, Peter delicately prohibits domestic violence in the Christian household. And that was a normative thing there. I mean, where men would be outright abusive by uh, using sure. modern-day language or whatever. And Peter is, and even 2,000 years ago, making abundantly clear, this is not the way of Christ. You are to treat her as the weaker vessel, and to cherish her and to care for her and provide for her. Yeah. So two things to note. One, to be crystal clear to all of our listeners, this is in no way creating women as a second-rate citizen of the kingdom. Sure. It's not devaluing. In fact, it's actually doing the opposite. And then secondly, it also brings balance to an equally yoked situation mm-hmm. when the husband is showing love and kindness to his wife and the wife is submitting 
it, it balances out that there is no unhealthiness there. That's that right. The husband isn't abusing the submission that Peter mm-hmm. or Paul has commanded in those situations. So, all right, weighty topics to start off this week. We're going to take a break and then we're going to dive back into this topic of marriage a little bit. Biblically, why does marriage exist? I'll start it off with the idea. There's a book by Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. And his point of the book is our marriages aren't really about us at all. They're about Christ and the church. And he even talks about the fact that really our marriages are a testimony and a witness to the world that should point them to Christ and the church. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I would agree with that. I I think um, because I've been... I don't know, reading on some marriage and like even like our wedding ceremonies. Uh, A wedding ceremony uh, in a biblical sense is a worship ceremony. Uh, Because if it's about Christ, then the the joining together of two lives is part of that work. It's part of our worship to Christ. This past weekend, I got to go to a wedding of uh, some of my good friends um, and know the fact that they are both believers. Um, kind of like Pastor Sandy said, it was a, a kind of a worship ceremony to see them come together as one flesh, um, mm-hmm. and their lives will, um, and their their marriage will show um, that it's Christ centered, yeah. um, and their lives point to Christ ultimately. Um, mm-hmm. I think marriage is a great thing. I think it's awesome. Um, I, I love watching them celebrate that and the love between them. Sure, and it was great. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So I think that shows right out of the gates about what marriage is mm-hmm. and you know the man and the woman coming together in marriage. Yeah, the old school language said cleave to his wife. That's right. Um, and, and the best way to represent that to, for us to understand what cleave to or hold fast to um, your wife is like plywood. I don't know if y'all know how plywood is made, but plywood is made by sheets of, uh, real thin sheets of wood and then glue and then wood and then glue. And then it's pressed together under a lot of heat. And then it's it's put together. And you can, if you look at plywood, you can see all the layers, but you can't ever separate those layers without tearing it all apart. And that's the, the kind of the biblical understanding of marriage. That's why, um, it's an anybody who's ever experienced a divorce, you know that, that it's an awful experience for anybody involved in that. It's because uh, because of that that joining together, that cleaving together, and we're made like plywood. If you try to tear plywood apart, it's it's just going to destroy it all. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be in in pieces. Which is uh, in a real sense what happens many times when we try to separate uh, in a marriage covenant. The passage that. We all reference in in the, this idea of marriage and it representing the relationship Christ Church is Ephesians five. So I'm just going to read all of it. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, is Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, he quotes the verse Paul um, Connor just mentioned, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined together, and two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ in the church. So Paul says, he goes in this whole elaborate thing of the roles of wives and husbands and how they're symbolic in, in marriage, and he gets in and he says, the mystery is profound. I'm not really talking to you about marriage. Yeah. I'm talking to you about Christ and the church. And the, so, the two are so intertwined that, that they're able to be talked about in that way. And it also puts a great responsibility on us in, in a marriage to go, you know, to me, the, the responsibility of the husband, the weight is so heavy. Like, it's my responsibility to show the world what the love of Christ for the church looks like. Yeah. Man, that's, that's, a, that's a big task to take on. And, um, but Paul is making it clear. And I think, you know, Keller, and I really recommend that book to any married couples, mm -hmm. The Meaning of Marriage. He does a great job of saying, you know, that's what our marriages are really about. And, and he calls them our greatest evangelistic tool. Yeah. I mean, mutual submission is already a very difficult thing, <laughs> but then to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot to ask. So of course I have a unique perspective, uh, in that I am a grown man with, who is not married. Um, and so I'll speak to the, the one or other person who will probably be like me and listening to this. Uh, marriage is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Um, I actively desire it and want it someday and maybe someday it will work out. But marriage is by no means required. Um, it is a good and wonderful state. Um, but in this present life, it, it, it's not necessary. So for those of you who are listening and you're not married or maybe you went through a divorce uh, and you're just trying to figure out things again, just take comfort in the fact that your status in Christ is infinitely more important than just a momentary marriage, which ultimately all marriages are. They're momentary. Therefore, this present life, uh, marriage, uh, men and women won't be given to marriage in the next world like they are now. However, and this is also probably worth stating, that also doesn't mean we need to, and I'm speaking to other single people like myself, we still need to hold marriage in high honor, even if it's not something that we're particularly participating in in that moment. It's not something to look down on or something to think of as, oh, well, that's just how they did it back in the day, and it's a, this holdover for some ancient world. No, it's still a good and beautiful thing. Um, and I, I think, honestly, part of the reason single people like myself don't have a more prominent or um, active role in churches is because we don't try to minister to our married brothers and sisters. Because our married brothers and sisters may be married, but they still got their own struggles. <laughs> and sure. not only do they have their own struggles, they've invited another person's struggles into their own life. Yeah. So uh, it, it's something, one, it, it's very popular right now in the world to say, hey, you know, the church needs to do a better job in ministering to singles. And I agree 100%. But I also think singles need to do a better job in ministering to our married brothers and sisters and, and praying for them in their marriages. And for whatever consolation it is, Paul said it's better to not be married. He did, yeah. He made it clear it was not a command from the Lord, but he, he, yes. he didn't pull any punches either. Yeah. That's going to wrap up our deep dive on the meaning of marriage today. We'll be right back to finish the, uh, out these verses.
All right, we're back to look at these last four, four verses that we're looking at today. And the first word of verse 8 says, finally. And it's really kind of bringing together this thought that Peter has been addressing through the last several subjective topics. He says, finally, all you be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. How does verses 8 and 9 kind of tie up the last couple of subjects that Peter's been addressing here in chapters 2 and 3? Well, when he's talking about persecution, you know, you, you, um, much of it's uh, probably financial and physical persecution um, to believers in the church during this time. And he's saying, look, don't, don't lash out. And, of course, now he puts it in um, the confines, uh, or not the confines, really, the context of marriage. He's saying don't pay back evil for evil, and, um, which if you've ever been in an argument and been married, it's, uh, it's, that's a real difficult thing because your, your natural instinct is to do this. They hurt me. I want to hurt them just a little bit more, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I'm talking about verbally, uh, of course. Um, I mean, sure. like they, they said something that they said they would never bring up. So now I'm going to say something that I said I would never bring up. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember, uh, and it reminds me of this story. Me and Jamie, when we first got married, our first house was 724 square feet. That was the... It was, it was like two hotel rooms. That was the entire size of our entire house. Mm-hmm. And it was me, Jamie, two kids, and a dog um, by the time we moved out. Now, when we first moved in, of course, it was just me and Jamie. And I think that it was it was a really good thing for us to have that small of a house um, because we had both lived with our parents all of our lives. And so we moved together in this small house. So anytime we ever got in an argument, we were in the same room. Like you couldn't just go into another room and slam the door because, of course, the walls were so thin, there wasn't much room to yeah. separate. And so um, anytime we ever, and we've never, and we've been married 24 years, we have never had like a shouting match. We've never had a knockdown drag out. We've never, um, it's, it's just, just never happened. Um, now, we've had disagreements, but both me and Jamie are both so passive when it comes to arguing like that. We'll both just kind of let it go um, after a while. And so we never, but we did have disagreements or arguments. But the thing is, we had to stay in the same room with one another and kind of work it out because there wasn't anywhere else to go. So what you're telling us is the way that you argue with Jamie is the opposite of how you argue with <laughs> anyone else in all of life. Yeah, because I'm married to her. I have to go home yeah, with, her gotta put with her every day. you got to with her. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't put it that way, but she she more or less. Because and, all these things you were saying that are not true. And, and here's the thing. Arguments. she And I always, whenever I do pre-marriage counseling, I always tell and anybody out there looking to get married, here's the one thing I always advise. You have to be good at showing one another grace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and that's that's really big. It's, I, I get it. Easier said than done. Sure. Totally understand. But I can guarantee you over Jamie and I both showed each other a lot of, she showed me way more grace than I probably had to show her uh, because she um, is so meek um, most of the time, but not all the time. Uh, I'm going to be quiet because I don't want to get myself in trouble here. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we, we've had to argue, but you have to show one another um, grace. And I yeah. think, and I think Peter, it, a lot of this being compassionate and humble, these are all, yeah. Um, many times synonymous with grace, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this thought originally started in verse 11 of chapter 2. 
where he says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. So he's addressing those who are believers living in a world they don't belong in. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe the good works and will glorify God in the day that he visits. And so that's this the beginning yeah. where he talks about all these different groups. He talks about submitting to human authority. He talks about slaves and slave masters. Mm -hmm. He talks about wives. He talks about husbands. And ultimately, here in verse chapter 3, verse 8, he's tying all that thing together and saying, okay, you aliens and strangers living in a world you don't belong, in all of these situations and all other ones, here's how you live honorably among Gentiles. Be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, Give a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. And so he's kind of putting a bookend on this thought of how we're to live among the Gentiles. Unbelievers, I guess, would be. I'll tell you this. Going to college here at ABAC, um, it's very easy to put on a self-image of acting like you have it all together. And being around people that don't live the way you live, it's very easy to push those people aside. Mm -hmm. uh, me and Matthew actually were talking about that, how it's so hard to be so honest and so true with those kind of with people that don't follow Christ because it's almost it's like you don't want them to see your bad side. But ultimately it's good to be comfortable with those people because if you're comfortable with somebody, they're gonna see the way you live. I had that problem when I lived with some guys there on ABAC. Um these guys were, you know, living a life not what I was doing. But a person in my life said, you know, it's not really that bad, Connor, because they're they're comfortable with you. They see that you're living differently. Um, and so I guess seeing, I guess being able to be comfortable with people that don't follow Christ. Yeah, Mark Dever said that he is way more comfortable around non-believers than he is around believers. Hmm. And, and he's, he's got an evangelistic attitude about him all the time anyway, so that, that wouldn't be surprising. But, I mean, he's... I'm, followed him long enough to know that, I mean, he, he said that more than one time. He said, I feel more comfortable around non-believers than I do believers. Mm -hmm. and, and But he means it in that context, in, in an evangelistic. Mm -hmm. Not that he has more in common with them or, sure, or sure. anything like that. But Yeah, I think there's, there's something to be said there, this idea of, especially as a pastor. I mean, sometimes, quite frankly, when I worked at Walmart, I... I was more comfortable with people when they didn't know I was a pastor. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, I never volunteer their information unless they ask me specifically because sure. people, not everybody, but most folks, I mean, they would just treat you different or whatever. Yeah. Um, oh, absolutely. Always, that, that made me uncomfortable, and I felt like it was ended up being, not always, but a lot of times it ended up being a barrier to having any sort of genuine right. relationship or any genuine friendship because they thought, oh, now i got to watch my toes. i got to watch the words I say. Uh, and then sometimes that was coming from a good place because they understood that I was living a different life than them. But sometimes it was just because they wanted to put up their own false self. All right, let's wrap up today by looking at this quote, Psalm 34. For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. So what's your thoughts on that last quote he uses to wrap up this subject matter? 
It, it is a kind of a good summary of everything that he's been talking about since verse 11, like you mentioned earlier. Uh, this idea for the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. I mean, that is, look, you could abuse it and you could misapply it. But if you wanted to summarize so much of the Christian life, it is seeking to do what is good in a given time, in a given place, with a given people. It's not to say there's not truth out there, because there definitely is. There's times where it's wrong. There's times where we fail and make mistakes. But we should be concerned about how best to serve and honor, first and foremost, how to best serve God, and then how to best serve and love our neighbors that are around us. Yeah, but I think it's interesting the way he he does necessarily, well, he does, but not explicitly, uh, tie it with our actions. He, he ties it with what we say. Like, he, he says... For the one who wants to love life and see good days, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. let him keep his tongue and, and from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. I think it's interesting that he ties that to, to you know, sure. uh, how we speak and what we speak and mm-hmm. those sort of things. Not that we can, like, I'm not saying, like, speak things into existence. And, yeah. like, if I say good things, good things will happen. If not I say sure. bad yeah. things, yeah. bad things will happen. That's Because that's more karma, not the gospel. Yeah. Um, but I do think it's interesting that, you know, and, and here's the thing. My mind, whenever I read that, my mind always goes, just because it comes across your mind doesn't mean it has to come out your mouth. And let's be honest. Everybody who's here and everybody who's uh, listening, that's probably got you more in trouble and caused you more heartache than a lot of the things that you do. It's because you just can't be quiet when you're supposed to be quiet. I know. Sure. We've all know that had times where, man, I shouldn't say this. Man, yeah. I shouldn't say this. Man, yeah. But you just can't help yourself. I, I, and see, I, and what's bad for me is like if, it, let's say you lied to me. And I know you lied to me. You know you lied to me. There's, there's, And I could just not say anything and just go on. But I got to let you know that I know you yeah. said something wrong, you know, yeah. like I, but really you don't have to, you know, you don't have to actually, everything that comes across your mind doesn't have to come out your mouth. You don't have to, but uh, there's just something in us. Like you, like you said, you um, don't, you, you really don't need to say that. Like you don't have to say that, but then you're like, no, I want to say it, you know? And yeah. so you just, you go ahead and say it anyway. Well, and I think there's some tie in here too. the fact that he talks so much about the tongue that out of the abundance of the heart flows the words of the mouth. Mm-hmm. Sure. Absolutely. And um, he's kind of addressing it from a reverse angle, but to truly control our mouth and control our hearts. Sure. Yeah. Um, you can only control your mouth so long if your heart's out of check. So, Well, great topics today. Uh, we look forward to being back with you guys next week. No matter how you listen to the Wordsmith podcast whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Review us, rate us, let us know what you like, and subscribe so you can make sure to get every new episode. We'll be back with you guys next week as we continue 1 Peter chapter 3.